Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. For several weeks, I've been looking at issues that had been burdening this congregation out of its past and unanswered questions. And after a little bit of that, I just, you know, the, the Lord sort of whispered, Um, I think it's time that they get a break. (laughs) We'll get back around to some of those questions bit by bit, but right now, we we need a break. So last week, I did a teaching on holiness, Uh, and that was probably more of a teaching, quote-unquote, than it was a preaching. Um, And if it's okay, I'm... Well, even if it's not okay, it's what I have. (laughs) I was going to do another teaching on something else, some other quality of God that we don't always necessarily understand or know what we're talking about. Not that it's, you know, not that it's a bad thing, but God wants us to worship Remember what Paul says to worship in spirit and with our minds so that we pour out our hearts to God, but we also have understanding of what we're doing and saying and what we're expressing to God. So my sermon today is the weight of glory, and I have to warn you we're not going to have scriptures flashed up on the screen. I have a bunch of them I'm looking at because this is more of a teaching. And we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures. I hope you brought your Bible. If not, you can write all over the back of your bulletin and jot some of these passages down so you can go look them up later. Um, the reason being, I was working on this till late, sometime last night, and I never had a chance to get any of my scriptures to, to Harrison to put up on the screen. And I'm not going to do it to him on short notice this morning, but that's okay. Because I think we're going to, you'll see, there, we're looking at a number of scriptures, let's just say that. Weight of glory. Lord, bless this word as I bring it. You bless your word as it speaks to our hearts. And above all, Lord, guide us to know how to worship you with our heart and our soul and all our strength and our mind. In Jesus' name, amen. It started in Brazil. According to reports, Sister Sylvania Merchado and Ruth Ward Heflin began a series of prayer meetings there, and during prayer, gold dust began appearing on people's outstretched hands, or they would be covered with a dusting of fine gold powder. Ruth Heflin wrote about it in in a book, Golden Glory, and she justified it there with Isaiah, quoting Isaiah 60, verse 2, Darkness will cover the nations and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Well, since then, 
YouTube has a number of videos of golden wisps filling the air at large worship services around the world. And we're told that this is the Shekinah glory of God. I'm skeptical. I doubt it. Maybe that makes me a bad person, but I doubt that too. Because while the Bible mentions how Moses' face would shine when he'd been in the presence of the Lord, and it would over time fade, it says nothing about it rubbing off or washing off. Golden wisps in the air, they might recall, you might want to draw some parallels to the tongues of flame descending with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, but what the rabbis later, it's not in the Bible, by the way, but what the rabbis later called the Shekinah glory, Shekinah, was not golden wisps. But it always appeared as a smothering cloud and smoke and a consuming fire. If what the rabbis called the Shekinah glory were to descend here, the fire marshal would not let us back in. A big part of our problem is that we, and folks in general, have a pretty, well, vague idea of what glory is. Glory, like holiness, is one of those Bible words that we use without thinking about it. You know, we pray, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. But we're not necessarily clear what it is we're ascribing to God. And then we sing, glory, glory, hallelujah. May not be sure what we're really saying. And the first question of our Westminster Shorter Catechism famously affirms that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So what is the glory of God? What does it mean that he's glorious? And what are we doing when we glorify God? Does it mean that we're, that we're being wispy golden? I doubt it. If you ask passerbys, they might say it has something to do with, with being famous, like a heroic soldier, or a rock star, or magnificent, like a house filled with marble and crystal, and, and so on. You know, worldly glory. Church people will usually say it must have something to do with with light or brightness. You know, like when the angels appear to the shepherds and it says, in glory shone around. Okay. I turn to the 14,000-page Church Dogmatics by theologian Karl Barth. And I found he devoted 
37 pages of small print to explaining the significance of glory, of, of the glory of God. But in all those 37 pages, he never actually defines what it is. Oh, well. So I went online to see what I could find. No. First thing that popped up was a bold print advertisement. I quote, shop God's glory on Amazon. Low prices for God's glory. <laughs> True story. True story. Bargain basement glory with free shipping. I, I'm not sure that's what I was looking for. Well, so I scroll down, of course, to Wikipedia and various bloggers, and I actually found something that was kind of useful. Things like, and they, there were four, four points. One, high renown or honor won by noble achievements synonymous with fame, renown, kudos, and eminence. Secondly, magnificence or great beauty, synonymous with splendor or grandeur. Thirdly, praise, worship, and thanksgiving to a deity, synonymous with adoration, veneration, and reverence, which is what we do. Doesn't mean we understand it, but what we're doing. And fourth, a luminous ring or halo in religious art to denote sacred figures and saints. As different as those definitions are, there is some validity for every one of these definitions, okay, except maybe the halos. So let's take a few minutes to explore the various words the Bible uses for glory and what they mean. And please bear with me here. The English word glory, it comes from the Latin gloria, which means fame or renown. Public glory. When you think about it in Latin, that's exactly what we would expect from the Romans, for whose generals and emperors the grand parade and the adulation of the masses was about the best thing they could ever imagine. So God's gloria is his public honor and prestige. And you give God glory when you tell and celebrate what he has done. And you make others think highly of him. It's not unlike the exhortation in 1 Chronicles 16 that says, Sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. Ascribe to the Lord... The glory do his name. 
First Chronicles 16 following. 16, uh, verse 23 following. The renown and glory that is the famousness, the telling of what God has done and what he's like to other people, the public acclaim. Well, now let's back up from the Latin to the Greek. Jerome and the early Bible scholars who were translating the Greek New Testament and the Greek version of the Old Testament into Latin, they used gloria to translate the Greek word doxa. It's, you know the word doxology, which means a word of glory, a, a saying of glory, a speech of glory is what doxology means. So the word doxa can mean honor, opinion, good reputation, or public judgment. So that in that sense, it correlates pretty well with the Latin word gloria. And you can see why they picked that word, gloria, to translate doxa. But doxa had another, in some ways, more common meaning, meaning that is shimmering light and brightness and brilliance as well as magnificence. In the sense, magnificent in, some, in the light, in, some, in the sense something reflects light. You see, so in the New Testament, God's glory can have something to do with the unimaginably bright light that surrounds and emanates from God, the glorified Christ, and from his angels. It's like the prophet John. This is what it moved the prophet John to describe the heavenly Jerusalem at the end of time in Revelation 21. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So John is playing with this double meaning of doxa, as public renown, as fame, as, as good reputation and judgment, and as well, light. Well, let's push back even farther. The glory of God is actually an Old Testament concept, and so the doxa was used by the scribes and the rabbis when they, in turn, had translated the Hebrew into Greek. So let's move back into the Hebrew. This time, though, there are several Hebrew words that all get translated doxa and, and glory, several words. And they correspond to different connotations of the word. Hebrew had several words. Greek just had one. And evidently, English doesn't have that many either. So there is, in Hebrew, pa'ar, for those that are studiously writing down words, pa'ar is P-A-A-R, with a little hiccup in between, pa'ar. To beautify, or to make oneself beautiful. 
This is used seven times in the Old Testament, all in the last 15 chapters of Isaiah. God is beautified through his servant, his suffering servant, and through his people. That is, when you trust him, when you obey his word and do his will, you make God beautiful. That's a nice image. Through what you do, how you obey and serve the Lord, you are making God beautiful. There could be a whole sermon in that. Not today. Because there's another Hebrew word, tiferah, which also refers to beauty and is translated glory some 21 times. And then you've got an don't ask me to spell tiferah. So I'm not going there anyway. But then there's the related words adir and hadar. That's another 18 times that do mean honor or majesty and good repute, good renown. And then once, but only once, the Hebrew word or, light, is translated as glory in the King James Version. What's especially interesting, and this is a complete aside, is tsebi, T-S-E-B-I, tsebi. Tsebi means beauty or desirability. And in the Hebrew Bible, it is used strictly for the fleeting glory of man which passes like a fading flower. It's not really used of God. It's used of of humans, of human kings, of, of human beings, the glory of a beautiful person or wealthy person, but it's fleeting. It's not going to last. Now, I mentioned this one at all because in all of the many, many instances where the Quran, the holy book of Islam, speaks of the glory of Allah, it always uses tsebi. That is, Allah's glory is likened to what in Hebrew is merely the empty and fading glory of human beings. I would, I would hope that the glory of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a little bit greater than that. Just saying. So far, you have been patient, and we have discovered that the glory of God can mean, on the one hand, his fame, renown, and reputation. What you're going to say about God, or what people say or think about God. And as well, on the other hand, his splendor and his beauty and, and once light. However, in an overwhelming number of passages, I did a rough count, a thoroughly unscientific count. I came to 176 times in the Old Testament. The glory of God is his kabod. That is one you may want to write down, K-A-B-O-D, K-A-B-O-D, his kabod. Now, considering the various Greek and Latin equivalents for it, that is not the word one would expect. 
Because kabod means weight. God is heavy. God is heavy. He has weight. Like his, holy, like his holiness, as far as I can find, God's glory also appears to be a very ancient word where the noun came first as a spontaneous response to the divine human encounter. That is, they meet God and the first impression is a thing, wait. And then later they derive verbs and adjectives from it. That is, God revealed himself at the very beginning in human experience. He broke into human awareness, and the only words that they could find, that they could express in the moment to define him, to describe him, were kodesh, holiness. That is, he's unlike and different from and other than anything else in this world. And kabod, heavy, weight. God was big. He was massive. He was heavy. Consider these words from what many scholars think is probably the very oldest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. You find glory is paired with strength here, with might, with glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory! The sheer thundering power of God's voice inspires you to acknowledge his glory. You see, at its origin, the glory of God is not necessarily fame or light, that comes sort of as a consequence as people reflect on it later. But it, and it's certainly not golden pixie dust. But it embodies God's strength and power, his earth-shaking thunder, the utter destructive force of the whirlwind. When you ascribe glory to God, you are responding to his sheer uncontainable might. Glory. Again and again, the Old Testament describes God appearing in glory. Listen to the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus in chapter 40, starting at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The same thing happens 
when the Ark of the Covenant is transferred from the old tabernacle to Solomon's newly erected temple. This is in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 following. Listen to it and keep the other one in mind. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The same thing happens almost verbatim. Part of it is verbatim. The same. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and the description in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Each time, the glory of the Lord appears in a sacred place, surrounded with clouds and sometimes with fire. But it is not, it, it's not itself the cloud or the fire. The glory of the Lord is its own thing, or his own thing. The cloud, the fire, are incidentals that accompany and reveal and to some extent interpret the power, the importance, we might say the weightiness of God. What drives the priests from the altar is not the, the fire, but the sheer massiveness, the weight of God's glory. Turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses, we'll look at verses 1 through 4. Now, praying in the temple, Isaiah, he's not a prophet quite yet, he is a priest. Isaiah the priest has a vision of God up on his throne. Let's look at this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. And seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds <coughs> shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. Just like we saw with the descent of God upon Mount Sinai. And we looked at last week. And like the glory of God filling the tabernacle, and like the cloud and glory filling the temple, as Isaiah is here worshiping, the sanctuary fills with sacrificial smoke and incense like an impenetrable cloud. The earth trembles 
and he sees visions of the Almighty God sitting in majestic sovereignty. The seraphim call to one another as they flit to and fro above him, and they call in an antiphonal refrain back and forth, declaring on the one hand the threefold holiness of God on his heavenly throne above, and the glory of God filling the earth below. Holiness and glory. The holiness of God and the glory of God are inseparable. They're two complementary attributes. The holiness of God, as we saw, is his separateness and his difference from, his distance from this world with, with its ordinariness and imperfection. His, it's really his distance from us. I mean, God is everlasting. In his very nature and being, God is everlasting, and we are mortal and temporary. I hope you know that. I don't want to burst any bubbles this morning on that. We, are, we will pass away very quickly. But God in his nature is omnipresent. We are bound to a body and a place. He is infinitely powerful and we, we are weak. And we are subject to every whim of geology or weather or microbiology or groupthink. We just, whatever's happening, we get swept along with it, like it or not. Oh, here comes the flu. Mm. Oh, here comes this political theory. Mm. Oh, here comes, oh, here comes a hurricane. Mm. God is not like that. He is holy. He is different. His holiness encompasses his sovereignty and his freedom over and above all time and space. His freedom above all the conditions that influence us down here. Seated upon his heavenly throne, up there, the angels declare God's holiness. You see, the holiness of God is his transcendence. Do you hear me? Big theological word, I know. But the holiness of God is that he is above and different from everything down here. That's his transcendence. His glory, now that, fills the earth. His holiness is up there. His glory is down here. The glory of God, in the sense of his kabot, his weight, comes upon you when God chooses to break into space and time to reveal himself and you find yourself face to face with God. That moment when you face the staggering, mighty and awesome, perhaps even awful, most holy God, you know the crushing weight of his presence. In his bigness, you're acutely aware of your own smallness, your frailty, your fragility, 
And the very choice of that particular word, kabod, implies that it can be felt physically like a heavy weight on the shoulders or chest. I have known many who were praying and who had a revelation of the presence and the power of God, and as they were praying there, they were felt pressed down to their knees and felt they wanted to ask the people praying around them, please don't bear down on them so much when they're laying on hands. Have you, I don't know if you've ever had that where someone seems to be putting all their weight on your head while you're praying. And then they would look up to say, to discover nobody was touching them. There is this weight Or Moses is forced from the tent. The priests are driven from the temple by God's glory. Isaiah even despairs of his life. People encounter the revealed glory of God or they encounter the risen Jesus or they encounter angelic messengers and what happens? They fall to the ground as if dead. That is kabod, that is weight. See, the sensory consciousness of God's presence, the physical and or emotional impact when he reveals himself to you, when he breaks into your experience and consciousness, that manifests his kabod, his glory. But what what this means is that God's holiness is his differentness and distance out there And his glory is his presence and his immediacy right here. You see the difference? God's holiness is his transcendence. God's glory is his imminence. The weight, the heaviness, the importance, or we could say the weightiness of God is his glory upon earth. The heavens are telling the glory of God, crows the psalmist again and again. His majesty, his sovereignty, his mighty works, there in creation and in redemption, all express and testify to his glory. And so we're told, Psalm 96, declare his glory among the nations. Just like the whole created order bears witness to the glory of God's power and wisdom, the Lord's people, who have been redeemed by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, that's you and me, must declare how he has revealed his glory through the saving acts he's done. And this way, the glory of God, first revealed by God on earth, through a creative act or a saving encounter, then becomes a living testimony to the world. And God is thereby glorified. The testimony to God's glory in his acts of creation and his acts of redemption is the testimony of what God has done in your life. Spreads his fame. It spreads his renown his good reputation, and his honor in the world. That is, assuming, of course, that you and I 
are actually willing to open our mouths and tell somebody. Just saying. Of the gospel writers, Mark and Matthew, both of whom were Jewish Christians, are most conscious of the Hebrew roots of glory. They avoid ascribing glory, doxa, to Jesus during his earthly life. Whenever an angel appears or when Jesus is transfigured upon the mountain, and today is, by the way, Transfiguration Sunday when we remember how Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and, and, and shone in dazzling white light. Mark and Matthew both say about how his, he and his clothing would shine in this dazzling bright light but they will not call it glory. Which is interesting. Luke, on the other hand, keep in mind Luke is a Gentile who's trying to explain who Jesus is to a non-Jewish audience, namely an audience who has no idea what kabod means or how they don't even have a, really have a good word to express it. So he has to try and express it in a way that they can understand. So he does speak, uh, I think maybe three times, of the doxa, once of the doxa of Jesus and twice of the doxa of the angels, as I recall. Um, But all three evangelists agree that you and I will one day see Jesus in glory. Namely, when Jesus, the Son of Man, descends from heaven, he will come, how? On the clouds of heaven with great glory. It's a quote from Daniel but it is described exactly like God descended on Sinai. How else would the Son of God descend to us? It's the gospel writer John, who is really the theologian of glory. John wants you and me to understand that God is present, imminent upon earth in the incarnate Son of God. Jesus both reveals his own glory and he glorifies the Father. Uh, In his miracles, specifically it's it's mentioned that when he turns the water into wine or raises the dead Lazarus to life again in chapter 2 and chapter 11 of John's Gospel. He says the glory that the Father gave to him during his earthly ministry, Jesus passes on to his disciples. That is through his acts of power, through his teachings, and through his self-revelation of who he is. That is in what he does and what he says, John wants us to understand that Jesus shows us the decisive revelation on earth of God's saving power, of his splendor, of his renown, and of his weightiness. 
However, this is not to be confused with brightness and boundless light. There is darkness here. You see, if you look in the Old Testament, glory always comes with a cloud. A heavy, dark, smothering cloud. Turn with me to John chapter 12. And we'll look at verse 23 to 25. John chapter 12, 23 following. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If it dies, that's the key. The hour of Jesus' ultimate glorification is not shining light on a mountaintop. It's not shimmering flames in the air, but it's there in the darkness of a sunless afternoon in the moment of death, hanging on a cross, when he cries out, it is finished. That's when it is finished. Betrayed, arrested, abandoned, condemned, beaten almost to death, murdered on a Roman cross. That is how Jesus completes the work that the Father has sent him to do. That is how he perfectly glorifies the Father in self-giving, sacrificial obedience. That is how he purchases an everlasting redemption for a lost human race. That's for you and for me. That is how he finishes it. There's no greater saving act of God than this in all of Scripture or in all of history. The weight of all of our sin is placed on his sagging shoulders. And that is the ultimate weight of God's glory. But even on Sinai, as the kabod, the weight, the glory of God descends, even within the swirling darkness of the cloud, there are flashes of light. So in the glorification of Jesus in the darkness of the cross, there is a mighty flash of resurrection. Glorified by his obedience to death, even the death on the cross, God raises up that dead body to new life. You see, only hours before his impending death, Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth by finishing, finishing the work you gave me to do. That's the cross. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. John 17, 5. You see, the Father perfectly answers that prayer and in his resurrection, he glorifies Jesus, the very Son of God. 
with the glory that he had previously known and, and shared for eternity with the Father. Yet the weight of the glory in the resurrection is inseparable from the weight of the glory on the cross. You can't separate them. They're one great saving act of God, one great movement of God. The high and distant transcendent God has become imminent. The holy God has become flesh and blood subject to death, and he has burst the chains of death, and that is his ultimate glory. The weight and weightiness of God, once experienced only by the few, and only in a few places in a faraway corner of the world, it's now accessible to everyone. Everyone can have it, can experience. The glory of God is no longer sequestered away in a dark building, behind heavy tapestries, because as Jesus died, that veil of that temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, not from bottom to top. From top to bottom, torn from above. God has left the building to display his glory among the nations, just as the prophets declared. Do you know the God of glory? The God who gave up every divine prerogative to become a human being who went willingly to die a death he didn't deserve in order to carry that other weight, the weight of your resistance, the weight of your distance from God, to carry that to the grave? Do you know what he did for you? Do you know what it cost him? Are you tired of your old life without God? Are you ready to begin a new life with God? And are you ready for that moment when the Son of Man will descend from heaven with the full weight of the clouds of glory? He's promised to share that glory, however you want to imagine it, with you and everyone who loves and belongs to him. And I guarantee you Whatever it is, it ain't pixie dust, and it won't wash off. Let's pray. Lord, teach us who you are and what you're like. We really don't have the words for it, and the words we have don't express it well. Help us to understand the concepts, but even more, the impact of your presence that inspires what words we have. Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you, for whom the whole notion of your holiness or your glory may be, may be foreign, I ask that you would break into their consciousness now to bring them to their knees in humble repentance and faith and then raise them up to a new life 
a life of purpose and a fresh awareness of who you are and what you do. Have your way in each one of us and in this church as we pray now and in all the days to come. And may we live and worship and testify for your glory. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.